Hello, and welcome to the I Hear Design podcast, your source for interior design and architecture news, interviews, and opinions. I'm Robert Yaminen, and I hope you're doing well wherever you're tuning in from today. I have to say, it's been great hearing from listeners like you lately and getting suggestions for people you'd like to hear on the podcast. So thank you for that, first and foremost. And on today's episode, you'll get to hear from Jessica Mann Amato, principal and co-owner of Mancini Duffy in New York, who shares her journey of rising to a leadership role as a woman in an industry that's still very much male-dominated, although that's changing, uh, thankfully. What I found so inspiring about Jessica's story is not only how she overcame some of the challenges of leading a multidisciplinary design firm using transparency as a guidepost, but also how the firm is using technology to innovate and inform the design process for their clients. I think you'll really enjoy the conversation I had with her recently about moving up the ranks in the design industry and how technology is reshaping it. Have a listen. Well, hi, Jessica. It's good to see you. Thanks for being on the podcast. Hi, Robert. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here today. Yeah, that's great. Um, so you're based in, in New York, correct? Yes, we are based yeah. in New York. I'm actually sitting in our, our brand new New York City office right now, uh, yeah. managing the final phase of construction as we're trying to deal with our supply chain issues and get everybody moved in. <laughs> right. right. Well, that's exciting. Yeah, you got a new office going on. And uh, yeah, sounds like the project uh, is probably like most projects out there today, right? Everybody's waiting on something, it seems like. Yes, yes. <laughs> we, um, we're we not immune to it. Just like all of our clients, there are some things that are just taking longer these days and there's nothing you can do about it. So we're trying to be as agile and pivot as much as we can to get our project completed. But yeah. we've definitely had a few hiccups that have made the construction a bit delayed. And we have a few things that are coming in quite late that we're just having mm. to work around. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I'm sure our listeners can relate definitely, but uh, when do you expect to, to be fully um, open and, and everything kind of finished? So we have 85 people showing up on Monday. Wow. <laughs> and okay. uh, I would say we're 95% complete. We okay. have some issues with our HVAC system, which had very long supply chain um, lead times. Um, so thank God it's it's spring and it's not too hot yet. We've been able to work mm. on that. So that should be coming in next week. And then some of our ancillary furniture is not coming in until July. So we've actually reused some of our old furniture and um, even rented a few pieces in order to make do until that comes in. So right, right. we just have to be agile and deal with it as it comes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I can't wait to see uh, pictures of it and, you know, and, uh, and check out the office firsthand. So that's great. Yes, yes. Yeah. Well, I know we have a, a lot more to talk about and I want to dive uh, a bit deeper into your story, some of the initiatives that you've been working on at Mancini Duffy. So uh, to kind of kick things off, though, um, why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and your career journey um, and like how and why and when did you decide to get into interior design? Okay, great. So I grew up in Florida, actually. Um, I'm from a family of a lot of very creative people. My grandfather was a structural engineer. My grandmother was a portrait artist. My other grandmother was, um, she really wanted to be an interior decorator, I think. So mm -hmm. I was kind of surrounded by that energy my whole childhood. And from the time I was about seven years old is when my mom told me I first started doing it. <laughs> I would rearrange all the furniture in our house. 
So uh, my mom would come home from work and I'd been there with my babysitter uh, and I had just literally rearranged everything. And I remember <laughs> at that age just thinking, wow, but this room just doesn't feel right. I could make this better. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing for someone so young. So right. um, I think that I, um, I had an inkling of what I wanted to do from that early age. And then like everyone, I went through phases of, you know, wanting to be a veterinarian or, or other things that, that children think about. But ultimately, sure. I circle back to, I think, really about in my early teens, um, wanting to do something in architecture or interior design. And I really loved the design elements of it, having grown up around my grandmother, who was always doing those things. Um, so from, from high school, really, I um, sort of single-mindedly uh, approached um, colleges that uh, had interior design degrees. So I, one of my art teachers in high school helped me to create a portfolio for an interview um, with a bunch of, of colleges. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I looked at about seven colleges, I think, and ultimately decided on Ringling School of Art and Design in Sarasota, Florida. I really liked their curriculum. It felt very challenging. It felt like when I graduated from there, I would have um, more experience with different types of projects than some of the other school curriculums. So I ultimately chose that, and it was one of the best decisions I ever made because it, it set me up with uh, some of the contacts that have helped to bolster my career. Um, so I graduated from there, and uh, I moved to New York City in 2000. Um, and that connection happened because of someone that I went to school with. Um, so I got my first job in New York at uh, Herman Miller, um, which is an amazing furniture manufacturer. Yeah. Um, and, and that was a bit of a different route, I think, for someone graduating from design school to take. At that time, um, when I graduated, most architecture and design firms were not um, paying uh, interns. And so uh, Herman Miller actually paid you a really great wage as an intern. So I took right. the job at Herman Miller as an intern because I could not afford to live in New York otherwise. <laughs> and uh, I, I think it was one of the most amazing things I could have done for my career because it set me up with a, a great network of people. And it also taught me a lot about furniture, which I think many interior designers don't fully comprehend a lot about contract furniture. Um, and just the ins and outs and how difficult it is to specify. So I gained a great knowledge about furniture there. Right. Um, one of the things they had me do was get highly involved in IIDA, the International Interior Design Association. And yep. so literally within the first two years of my career, I met principals at New York firms just through attending IIDA meetings, volunteering for IIDA. <clears throat> so I met a lot of different principals and started um, creating my connections and my tribe. Mm. Um, so I eventually moved on from Herman Miller and uh, did go uh, into a design firm after about two years. And I went to Conant Architects, which was a small, about 12 person firm. Um, that was an amazing experience for me because uh, being a firm of that size, everybody does everything. So, you know, two years out of school, I was interacting with some very important clients. I was um, creating the full design and, and working on the construction documents. And I just learned an amazing education about the design process there. Um, I left uh, Conant and went to Spectre Group. 
And at Spectre Group, I um, was in charge of some very, very large, um, you know, eight floor um, build outs for some important clients. And so again, at an early age, I was kind of thrown into the fire and it was either sink or swim and, and mm -hmm. I swam hard. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> so I was able to um, really bolster some great uh, client relationships and complete some amazing projects there. Um, then I moved on to HLW, which was a, a short stint, but uh, a great time working with clients like Google. Um, so I got to do some really creative and fun projects and oversee a great team of people working on that project. Um, and then I actually had another stint at Spectre Group. They um, called me back and said, uh, you know, we haven't had a design director like you were since you left and um, it'd be a great time for you to come back. So I went back, continued some amazing client relationships, essentially grew into um, almost a principal role there where I was helping to um, uh, lead the firm, manage a lot of the mm -hmm. people and, um, and lead the interior design department. But the thing that I was kind of missing is that next step in my career. And my intention has always been either to own my own firm or to be, you know, a principal or part owner of, of another firm, um, right. which is a bit hard in New York for an interior designer to do that um, sure. because of the legislation in New York. So we, we can't, as interior designers, own, um, own uh, a majority share in an architecture firm. Okay. So yeah. um, I had actually worked with Christian, who is our president and CEO at Conant. He and I have known each other our entire careers. And um, Christian started pursuing me and saying, you know, uh, you have this amazing reputation of everything that you've achieved in, in all of the other places that you've worked since we worked together. And I'd love for you to come lead our interiors and yeah. uh, really help bolster that, um, help to mentor and help to um, establish some client relationships for, uh, you know, long term um, client relationships for ongoing projects. So yeah. um, he pursued me for a while. I was very happy at Spectre Group at the time. And um, I, I waited quite a while to accept his offer. But ultimately, mm -hmm. what I found intriguing is that there's a great group of partners here. And I was looking for that next step. I was looking for, um, you know, a firm where I could be part of leadership and part owner of the firm and, and to establish kind of the rest of my career moving forward and to find my home uh, right. for that. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. No, I was going to say, yeah. Uh, no, and I'm, I'm glad you touched on that because I mean, I, I know as far as like the leadership uh, position in that role that you're occupying, I mean, there in the industry today, there just aren't a whole lot of women occupying, um, you know, roles as principals and leaders and, you know, owners of firms. Um, although I think it's changing, thankfully, but um, so can you talk a little bit more about how, I mean, you know, you talked about, um, you know, being invited to that, to the table, but what, what's, what were some of the challenges that you faced along the way as far as um, stepping into that role or, or managing that role? Um, I think as a woman in general in our industry, you know, not so much about me stepping into that role at Mancini, but just mm -hmm. as a woman in general in our industry, we're yeah. always faced with challenges. Um, a lot of it is just being in a room in a very uh, male-dominated setting. Our industry is very male-dominated. It is changing, um, mm -hmm. thank God. <laughs> <laughs> it is changing, but you know, ever since I first started in this industry, it's always been very male-dominated. So many, many times in my career, I've been the only woman in the room. 
And what that meant was that uh, clients would focus in on the male that they felt like was the leader in the room. Mm-hmm. and look over me. I, I can't tell you how many times I've been in meetings and the clients don't even look at you. And so I really had to find my voice from a very young age to be able to establish myself as a leader in the room and to be able to take charge and do my job leading the design of the project. Um, so it, it's I, I, I essentially decided a long time ago to kill them with kindness. And it has always worked in my favor. I think that's part of my Southern roots. Um, So I I am very nice and yet simultaneously very persistent with clients. And once they realize after a few meetings that I am the voice in the room that they need to listen to, that I'm the one making the decisions, I'm the one Mm -hmm. leading the team, then it's pretty interesting to see how that shifts and their focus turns to me and stays on me. Um, I also really believe in just being completely honest and truthful about everything. And so I think that has garnered me a big client following because they know they can trust me. Uh, there's no BS with me. I'm always honest about everything. Um, right. I'm honest when there's an issue and, and how we're going to fix it. I'm, I'm honest and transparent with, you know, not only the client, but all the consultants and the project team as well. So Um, And then transitioning into Mancini. um, So I had this intention of of being an owner in a firm. And in all of my conversations before joining the firm, that was my intention. And so we set out, um, you know, some goals to achieve before that would happen. And I achieved all of them very quickly and actually became a shareholder in the firm about a year earlier than we initially thought. Mm-hmm. Um, I've been able to really bolster a lot of client relationships. I've been able to grow the design team. Um, I've been able to help establish a lot of policies and processes for how we design at Mancini. And in addition to that, I think I've really been able to mentor and uh, just bolster our team's knowledge, um, our team's you know professionalism and professional development. So, um, I think that the rest of the leadership just found me to be a great partner um, from the design perspective. And, and we were lacking that before. We did not have a strong uh, design partner in the firm. So, right, um, right. And I think what we all do so well is that we all have our specialties. So each one of us out of the five of us that are shareholders in the firm have our own specialties and we rely on each other to um, really own your specialty. And, and that allows us each to be really good at, at what we need to be good at and know that our other partners are handling the rest of it. Right. Yeah, definitely. And you, you know, you touched on um, honesty and transparency. Can you talk a little bit about the company culture at Mancini Duffy? Like how do you and your team lead through transparency and how has that sort of influenced or shaped the culture of the firm? A lot of that starts with um, being honest with the team about the business of design so we are very open and honest from the initial fee we share the fee with the whole team and we uh, through our staffing through our projections for upcoming work the team is really aware of what the goals are um, from an accounting perspective on the project they're aware of um, how many staffing hours they have on the project and that if they're over on their staffing hours how that negatively affects fees so we're very honest in our conversations about trying to manage the client expectations with the staffing hours and ensuring that we're able to be profitable on projects so i think that's kind of where the transparency starts 
the other thing is that we are really firm believers in professional development within the firm. So it's not like um, many other firms that I've worked at where um, the company kind of sets your career goals and you're just working towards goals that, uh, you know, your leaders have established for you. We have, um, we have monthly check-ins with our employees and we have um, a robust um, a touch base with them before reviews every year to establish their professional development goals and work towards it throughout the year. So we're establishing goals that we need for them, but a lot of it honestly is them establishing goals of what they want to achieve. And so I think from the way that we go about um, employee reviews and employee professional development, we have established this culture of um, being very entrepreneurial. We're encouraging people to um, look to achieve other things, to look beyond their job role and think about what they can develop for Mancini Duffy, to look at how we can grow, to look at uh, you know things that they don't feel like they're that skilled in and they want to bolster their skills. So instead of, um, you know, kind of pigeonholing people into a single role, we make it easy for them to be able to experience anything that they want to experience and grow professionally in that way. And out of that, we've had some pretty amazing things happen. Uh, we have our design lab, which has been established. And that kind of came out of us saying, okay, we want to do something a little bit different than the industry is doing. We want to really bolster technology and we want to design differently through technology. Mm -hmm. And in order to do that, we need to put in some R&D dollars and we need to establish a process of doing that. So we did, um, Michael Kipfer, who leads our design lab, um, you know, we did set aside some R&D dollars and we really um, gave him free reign to create our design lab and our, our tool belt proprietary software. Mm -hmm. um, there are some other things that have come out of that as well. We had an employee who uh, was very interested, it came out in her um, professional development reviews, was very interested in final layer staging and styling. So after we've designed the whole project, construction is done, you know, it's the it's the throw pillows, it's the artwork, it's staging with plants and books. It's really just that final layer that makes the space feel like it's it's come together. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the first things that clients cut out in the initial phases in order to uh, save money on the project. But when you are missing that, sometimes the spaces don't feel 100% complete or welcoming or livable. So um, she established MDLX. Uh, which is another division of our company that does final layer staging and styling. So really out of this process of our professional development, we're encouraging people to be entrepreneurial and to um, throw out crazy ideas and maybe they'll become a new division of the company. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that's great. No, I love that entrepreneurial, you know, that really kind of puts um, your employees in the driver's seat as far as their careers and what they want to explore, where they want to go, uh, you know. But um, you did touch on the tool belt technology, and I wanted to ask you a little bit more about that. Like, like what is it exactly? How does it work? Um, you know, what are the benefits of, of, of that particular technology? Yes. Um, so tool belt is a software that we created to allow clients to be able to walk through their spaces that we're designing for them in virtual reality, essentially. So mm -hmm. when we first developed it, they were doing it in our design lab with the goggles on. But it has since been developed further. And that was one of the things that the pandemic kind of 
spurred on and we rapidly developed uh, the ability for them to walk through it in a multiplayer environment, you know, from the comfort of their own home, looking at their laptop. So um, basically everyone enters into the software, you get an avatar, you can see your avatar. And so I can be in the software presenting to the client as the client is also in the software. You can see our avatars walking around um, and I can walk them around in the 3D environment and present the design to them in real time in that environment. We can have up to 50 um, avatars in the environment at once. And so what this has allowed us to do, you know, many times when we're working off PDFs or just off of, of 2D or even still renderings, um, we would hear very often that, you know, clients would say, well, what does that look like over here? Or, you know, what is this detail like? Or how do we do this? And we wanted more flexibility in order to be able to adapt instantaneously within the environment. Mm -hmm. So the way that it starts is we work in Revit, we create our model. A lot of it really is kind of based in Revit. And then Toolbelt is a software tie-in. Um, so you export your Revit model into Toolbelt. And what that allows us to do is manipulate the environment within Toolbelt. It allows us to um, add in finishes, add in lighting. So it's kind of taking like the best of Revit and the best of a lot of other um, rendering programs and combining it all into one. Um, so when I say manipulate, we can move things around, we can build and shift walls, ceilings, floors, furniture in real time while you're in the environment. It's almost like the movie Inception, you know, where mm -hmm. the environment's <laughs> changing around you. Yeah. Um, so the 3D environment will be changing around you as we're, we're um, in one of our design sessions. And, um, and we're able to layer in, you know, finishes and lighting. And so in real time, you can see what all the finishes that we're proposing look like. So the way this works through our design process is from initial test fit, mm -hmm. we are building everything in 3D. So we're able to, as we're, you know, potentially test fitting multiple different locations for a client so they can ultimately decide where to lease or buy. Um, we're able to walk them through kind of a whitewashed model uh, so that they can see what the space feels like. So that's from initial test fit. As we start getting into conceptual and schematic design, that's when we start doing, you know, those big conceptual moves throughout the space, layering in very initial ideas of materiality within the space, really getting to understand the circulation, um, you know, what some of the big factors and elements of the space will be like ceiling design, feature millwork or furniture. Um, so you get to layer in sort of light finishes in that stage. And then as we get into design development, you're literally seeing all of the finishes in the model. You're seeing all of the exact furniture families in the model. Um, mm -hmm. You're seeing final uh, reflected ceiling plans. You're seeing lighting that's illuminated within the space. So we can very easily see what the actual lighting illumination will be. Um, and you know, so on and so forth. The, the other great thing is that it allows us to um, coordinate with all of our consultants really well. So when we hold our meetings um, in uh, a 360 design session within the tool belt, not only are the clients seeing it, but the consultants are all seeing it as well. So mm -hmm. it allows them to design all of the systems with us within this environment and um, they have a better understanding of the design it helps to avoid conflicts with the design. It helps for all of us to work out the details better. 
And then ultimately it helps us to get kind of buy-in and approval for each phase of our design and construction process, but because the client can visualize everything so well. Right. So you bring the clients on fairly early in the process. You're not waiting until the design is kind of complete and, hey, here's what it looks like. And then you want to change or move things. We can do that, like change orders or you're kind of bringing them in early. Is that right? Yeah, we bring them in from initial test fit and whitewash model. We're we're right. literally presenting um, all stages of the design and construction within this 3D environment. So we really don't do a lot of 2D printed materials anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, sometimes we'll we'll look at furniture uh, in that manner, but ultimately, once we've made decisions on the furniture, it all gets input into our model. Um, And once we've decided on the finishes, it all gets input into our model. Or sometimes if we're trying to decide between option A and option B, we're putting it in the model and we're letting the client kind of feel it out within the model. And then we make the decisions together. So it's a very different way of presenting than I think all of us are used to uh, historically, where we are presenting on a a kind of flat 2D way. Mm -hmm. This allows them to really feel what the design will feel like in that immersive environment. Right, right. So then like changes that are made, let's say in with a client or or towards the end with finishes materials, then um, I so those can be saved there. Do they export back out or is that just kind of it, it's all done in the tool belt and then that becomes the final um, that you guys use to then, um, you know, build out the space? So it is all done in tool belt. Um, there are, you know, there's tie-ins to Revit and a lot of mm-hmm. it is coming directly from Revit. So there's a lot of things that we're working with the layering in Revit and the families in Revit, and then it's getting exported into Toolbelt. So it's kind of a simultaneous process. Um, so it allows us to sort of hit the ground running with everything that we've developed in Revit and as it ties into Toolbelt so that we can go directly from design into construction documents. We're not doing construction documents, um, you know, directly in Toolbelt. Those mm-hmm. are still created from Revit. Okay. But what it allows us to do is to very quickly visualize anything in Toolbelt that we need to. Right. Right. Okay. And so, um, so the last question I had for you, Jessica, was really like kind of looking forward, kind of projecting ahead. Um, where do you see this type of technology, this tool belt technology and others maybe like it? Uh, where are they leading the architecture and design industry um, in the future? Like, um, will we be able to integrate machine learning, AI into current design practices? And, you know, how do you ensure that it just doesn't, you know, we don't lose touch with the human uh, elements of it all? Right. Um you know, we have this big hairy goal of uh, being able to never print again. (laughs) (laughs) And that goes, you know, all the way through to the Department of Buildings and having to print out sets for them or, you know, upload sets for them. We want to do our entire process within our virtual environment, including a walkthrough with someone from the Department of Buildings in order to get approval for our permitting. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's kind of a, a a goal that started as a sustainability goal, and it's just become this sort of big hairy idea that we really want to tackle. The hardest part of that, I think, is the DOB process. Um, you know, it's it's like snails trying to change anything. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yeah. we we do ultimately want to try to do that. Now, the human element, I think, because of the way that we have designed our our software, so that you're in the software together as an avatar, you're hearing each other's voices, you're seeing each other walk around. Mm -hmm. Um, 
we're definitely still trying to keep that that human element uh, with that. And in addition to that, the way that we design kind of behind the scenes before we're walking the client through it is we're all in a room together and we're working within the 3D environment as we're working out design ideas and design details. So it's still a very team centric approach to the design. Right. It's just a very different way of actually presenting it. Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, and it's so interesting. I love the, you know, the possibilities that uh, this type of immersive technology uh, presents. And like you said, too, the sustainability component, which I didn't even touch on, really. But, you know, getting rid of the paper. And and I can tell you from the publishing uh, side of, of the business, uh, you know, paper is at a, is at a shortage, you know. Um, and so yeah. <laughs> as, as with every other thing we talked about, right, supply chain issues. Um, but but no, it's, it's so fascinating. Um, Jessica, where could our, our listeners go to find out more about uh, Mancini Duffy and the work that you all are doing? Absolutely. Yes. So you can find us at www.mancinyduffy.com. You can also check out the tool belt at thetoolbelt.com. Um, and then you can find me on Instagram under Jessica Manamato. All right. Well, perfect. Well, thank you so much again for being on the podcast, Jessica. It was great chatting with you. Thank you, Robert. It's been wonderful talking with you. All right. Well, for our listeners out there, please do us a favor and give us a rating on your favorite podcast platform or drop us a line with suggestions for more people and topics you'd like to hear about in upcoming episodes. Thank you for tuning in. And as always, be well, everyone. Mm -hmm.